skeptical about custom beauty, honestly, y'all, I totally get it. My feed is flooded with customize this and personalize that, all promising, you know, to fix all of our beauty, hair, and skin problems. Truthfully, I was so skeptical when I saw this brand, but I'm a total believer now. When pros says custom, they actually mean it. Their products are no gimmicks, and your formula couldn't exist without you. Each and every bottle of Pro's custom hair care and skin care is made to order and personalized with unique blends of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. Their in-depth consultation analyzes over 80 factors for a complete view of your life and beauty goals. And they get personal. Pro's covers everything from your concerns to diet, exercise, and stress levels to uncover what's impacting your hair and skin health. Did you know, for example, that Minneapolis has like weirdly hard water, which apparently was affecting my hair. So like some of the ingredients that they put into my hair care was to like deal with the fact that we have hard water. Wow. I love that. They also asked me things like, you know, because I have had a baby recently, like, am I still breastfeeding? What are my hair goals? And I also really appreciated they asked like, how much effort do you want to put into your hair? Yeah, <laughs> because like I'm at the point, you know, I used to let, yeah, I used to do those, you know, put effort into my appearance, but now it's like, I just want to be able to walk out of the door without feeling self-conscious. Um, I, this is truly such a genuine endorsement. So I've really enjoyed using these products. But don't just take our word for it. In a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised control clinical trial, this is like the gold standard of all of these trials, Pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so you can see the difference custom care can make. 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash justbreakup. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash justbreakup for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas, pros.com slash justbreakup. Welcome to Just Break Up, the podcast about love, heartbreak, and all the relationship advice you don't want to hear. My name is Sierra DeMolder. And I'm Sam Blackwell. And this week on Head and Heartwork Conversations, we're talking to Angela Chen, whose pronouns are she, her, who's an, a journalist and editor and author of ACE, What Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex, which was named one of the best books of 2020 by NPR, Electric Literature, and Them. Angela, welcome to the show. We are so excited to have you on. Um, I have been talking about your book for yep. a year now, <laughs> ever since I read it, Um because it's awesome. It's a it's a great book. Uh, so thank you for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And um, what I love about your book is that it is about asexuality, right? Like that's sort of mm -hmm. it's sort of like grounded in the identity of 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 asexuality, but it's also just about sexuality in general. <laughs> and like, as somebody who doesn't identify as ace, right, I got so much out of it that really helped me transform my thinking about mm. desire, about sex, about the prescribed notions that we have around sexuality. So 
Um, I can't recommend your book enough. I'm so excited that you agreed to have this conversation with us. <laughs> yeah, I love hearing that. I love hearing when people say, you know, this is relevant to me. This makes me see the world differently, regardless of yeah. how I identify now or in the past or in the future. Mm-hmm. I love it. And I, what I love about your book too is um, that it is really sort of focused on talking about the sort of ideas around asexuality, but Mm -hmm. it's also really grounded in your own experience and also the experiences of the other folks that you interviewed too. So it feels very personal and at the same time, very thoughtful. So it's, it's like the best of both worlds. Great. Love hearing that. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. So, um, some questions for you that we have. So the first one that we have is, you know, we often think about sexuality in, in, binaries, you know, like we think about lots of, lots of things in binaries really. Um, and, and asexuality is, you know, not having any sexual attraction and being aloe means that you have sexual attraction. But in your book, one of the big things that you talk about is how everyone sort of exists in this like array of sexual desire, right? Some folks want none, some folks want lots, some folks want it in particular ways. Some folks want it with particular people, right? It's sort of much broader than just this. You either are or you aren't. Can you talk a little bit about why it was important for you to challenge some of that binary thinking about sexuality? Yeah, I think the most important thing is that binary thinking about sexuality. You know, you're ace or you're aloe. Um, it just doesn't reflect how the world works. You know, I'll use an example that has nothing to do with sexuality. You know, let's say there's art and science, right? And sometimes people you can Mm. be tempted to say, I'm an art person, I'm a science person, but there's plenty of people who love both. And when you give them only two options, what about someone who likes poetry and math? And what could they do if they, you know, accepted all parts of them and put those things together? So it's not even about me kind of, you know, choosing a framework. I'm just trying to describe the world as I see it. You know, my Mm. day job, I'm a science journalist. I work at a tech magazine. So I understand the appeal of these really clean systems and, you know, I'm this or I'm not, and, Mm. you know, I can control the world and, but that's just not how the world works. And Mm. once we acknowledge that things can be really fluid and maybe sometimes, um, how you, your sexuality is when you were 14 is different from when you were 40 and the Mm. types of people you're attracted to. And also so many different factors go into sexual attraction, you know, social factors, but biological factors and psychological factors. So I just want to see the world, the way it works and the way it works that it's complex, it's nuanced, it's shifting. And I think that makes people anxious. It makes Mm, me anxious, (laughs) but also I think it's more honest. And when we can Mm. get to a place of honesty and not be afraid of reality, I think that's when we Mm. can start to be, you know, more self-aware and closer to other folks. Absolutely. Why Why do you think it makes us anxious? I totally agree with you that we really struggle with that that friction. Um, we really want it to be more black and white, more, more able to be categorized. Um, but I totally agree that the world and just human nature is just so much more nuanced than that. Why do you think it makes us uncomfortable? I thought a lot about this and I think it's because the more fluidity there are, the harder it is to decide what to do. So Mm -hmm. a lot of people will ask me, you know, am I ace or am I not ace? And you know, I'll kind of walk them through some ideas and questions, but I think what's really at the bottom of that, the actual question is, do I need to keep pushing myself? Because Mm. I think people think, okay, if 
God, you know, or, you know, insert whatever certainty told you that I was ace. I'd always been ace. I was always, I was going to be ace forever. Then you don't have to keep putting yourself out there. But if there's a Mm. chance that maybe you will change tomorrow, then maybe you should go on that date, you Mm. know? And so Mm. I think there's this question. It's actually, you know, the question of what identity am I? How long am I going to be this identity is actually about trying to make decisions, I think is about trying to make decisions easier. You know, if you, if you yes. know that sure. you're straight, then I think that makes dating easier for you. In <laughs> right. some sense, for you sure. know, you know who you're not yeah. attracted to. Right. And so clarity and simplicity means that it's less overwhelming. There's so many things that are overwhelming, um, but mm. it can also be limiting if it's, yes. if it's artificial. I feel yeah. like that's true of sexuality and religion and career mm-hmm. and relationships. If we've, we find security in rigid rigidity. Mm-hmm. And also that's just not the way life unfolds. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> we are constantly, that's, that's constantly proven wrong to us. Um, so another uh, idea that you talk about in the book is compulsory sexuality. Can you tell our listeners what that is and why it is harmful for both aces and aloes? Yeah. So I think a lot of listeners will be familiar with compulsory heterosexuality, Adrian Rich's idea, and then compulsory sexuality kind of builds off of that. It's a play. And it's this idea that, you know, every kind of normal, healthy adult is sexual and, you know, has sexual desires and sexual attraction. And it's not about behavior. You know, there's plenty of people who want sex and aren't having it, but it's the wanting that kind of, you know, the being Mm -hmm. a sexual creature that makes you normal, quote unquote normal. And I mean, I think it's easy to see how it can be harmful to people who are somewhere on the A spectrum, because if you grow up hearing that this is how everyone is, this is how healthy people are, and that's not your experience, then of course you start thinking, okay, there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm physically ill. Maybe I'm repressed. Maybe Mm -hmm. I um, am secretly gay or maybe, you know, like maybe I need to take hormones. But I also think that even if you are allosexual, if you do experience, um, if you do experience uh, sexual attraction, you can still be harmed by compulsory sexuality because of all of these messages around how much sex we're supposed to have and how sex makes you Mm. super passionate and how you're going to unlock yourself through sex or be more Mm. of a man if you have more sex. It's Mm. just telling, it's just providing all of these narrow circumscribed pathways to be you know, toward what we want. You know, I think all of us want to feel accepted and we want to feel passionate and alive. And when compulsory sexuality tells us that the only way to get there is through a very certain type of sexual behavior, then that that keeps us focused on that behavior instead of looking more broadly at all the other things that could actually be better at making us feel more alive or better mm-hmm. at making us connect with other folks in any sort, any number of ways. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I appreciate in your book, the way that you talk about even the idea that, that being asexual has a thing that like, there's a thing that needs to be fixed about it. Right. And so like a lot of times people will be like, oh, well, it's just because you're oppressed or, oh, it's just because you hate men right now or like whatever it is. And, and you say throughout the book, like, it doesn't matter what the reason is because not having sexual desire for whatever reason 
is 100% valid, right? And the assumption that it isn't or that there's something wrong, again, like leads into that compulsory sexuality, which says that like we should all want sex, like that's the best way to be. And that there's something that's getting in the way of that rather than saying like, no, actually people don't want sex and that's an okay way to be operating through their lives and they don't need to explain it to you <laughs> or like tell you why or have some sort of reason that's valid enough for them to not want sex for a period of time or for their entire lives. Absolutely. And it's also really nuanced because, you know, going back to this issue about choices and freedom and how that creates all this anxiety, I also think that, you know, some people want to raise their um, amount of sexual desire or attraction, and that mm -hmm. can be fine too. But it's so much about motivation and really knowing yourself. You know, am mm -hmm. I wanting to do this because in the past I experienced more sexual attraction and, you know, that's something I want again? Am I doing this because my partner makes me feel like I have to mm -hmm. and I think we're going to break up if I don't, you know, submit to more sex? Am I doing this right. because I'm curious and kind of excited about it? Or am I doing mm. this because I want to be normal? So mm. it's not, mm. you know, I just always want to make sure it's not the other way saying that wanting to, you know, experiment with your sexuality, whatever it may be, that's fine too. But it's so much about what is for you versus what is for others. And, and you know, where is the source of pressure coming from? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think about that in in sort of the broader realm of like queerness and queer identities too, and sort of the fixation we have on like you have to like pick one <laughs> and like mm -hmm. stick with it, right? And the idea of if you if you suddenly start you know having sex with people who are of the same gender as you, then like you're leaving that queerness behind or something, or like you're betraying people. But it's like the point isn't that people are sort of put into more boxes. The point is that people have more choice even if that choice is something that we may consider, you know, not necessarily part of the queer community or not behaving in ways that we would expect queer people to. So like, it's interesting to see all of the intersections of these different types of sexuality and some of the, the similar ways in which we kind of trip ourselves up in, in trying to be, trying to offer labels as ways for people to, to understand themselves. And then also those labels sort of getting in the way of our ability to actually make choices about our sexualities. Mm. Absolutely. And even for me, you know, my book is called Ace. So it's a little late to go back, but yeah. I do feel, <laughs> I do feel like for me personally, the, I like the word Ace, the word asexual, I feel like personally only speaking for myself has never really resonated because I feel mm. like mm. I do have a sexuality. I just feel like it is different from kind of the norm. And so even the, you know, the word people use to describe me all the time, I'm not going to correct them, but I would love to see, I mean, more nuance there because mm -hmm. my experience is so different from that of maybe a sex repulsed ace or an aromantic, um, you know, ace. So yeah, even for me, someone who wrote this book there, <laughs> sure, you know, yeah. labels can be helpful <laughs> and also get in the way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I also wanted to talk with you a little bit about the idea of a sexual script. So you talk about this in the book a bunch, but it's sort of this idea or this assumption that all sexual encounters sort of follow the same path, right? Like kissing, touching, penetration, like all sorts of different sort of prescribed notions. And that we kind of assume that everyone is operating under the same idea of what this encounter is going to look like. And can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? And, and also like, do you have any recommendations for how to disrupt that script either before something's happening or even during when something is happening? 
Yeah. So I think that this, again, I think the theme is really going all back to the fact that all of us are nervous and all of us (laughs) want to know what's going on. And then the script, whether you believe it or not, you kind of, it becomes this mind game. So for example, there's a script that you have sex on the third date, right? And maybe that's not Mm -hmm. what you want, but you don't know the other person that well. Maybe that's what they expect. Like you, the script is there, even if you don't believe in it, even if you don't care. And there's just so many ways to relate beyond the script. And this isn't even about waiting until the ninth date. Maybe you want to have sex on the first date, but then you Mm -hmm. worry, you know, does that mean I'm easy, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that really um, limits all of us. And in terms of ways to disrupt it, I think the bad news is that I don't know if there's a way to disrupt it. That's not a little bit awkward. You know, you have to have (laughs) a certain amount of emotional thick skin or emotional bravery. I'll put it that way. Emotional bravery. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Cause I think, I think the key is just saying, um, sometimes I tell people you can just name it, you know, you can make a joke out of it. Like, Oh, you know, Mm. this is the third date, you know, we're supposed to be going back to your place. Um, but I'm not interested in that script. What do you actually want to do? I think the key is maybe see if you can name it and then say, what do you actually want to do? And it can be, whatever the script is, it can be something totally different. Um, and so I think naming and, and noticing, um, is the key, but I understand nobody wants, it's just easier not to do that. So I think Mm. there's no hack. The answer is we, we have to be more, we have to, I think, cultivate our own sense of emotional safety so Mm. that we feel comfortable doing that. Because the truth is, when you do anything outside the script, there always is the chance that the other person will be a little weirded out or (laughs) think that it was an odd thing to do. So I think cultivating your own sense of security um, is really Mm. key to disrupting the dynamic, which is also hard because, you know, of course, when you're on a date, you want the person to like you, right? So there's so many kind of <laughs> right. other, so many things going on. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's real. And, and part of it also requires the self-awareness to even know what you want and what you're right. into, which I think is so hard for so many of us to even know, like, I'm just following the the prescribed script because it's easier than knowing myself deeply enough to say it's not working for me, right? right. Like, yes. And to have to say to someone, actually, I don't really want to have sex is like, it's kind of like reclaiming your power, but that's also scary in a lot of ways because it means that you have to, to do something different. Um, and that's, that's challenging. Yeah. It means you have to be active and it can mm. be yeah. more convenient to be passive. You know, yes. I think, you know, kind of culturally, we talk a lot about, you know, we need agency, we need to be empowered, but then it's actually very scary to be empowered. For sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's such a good point, Sam. Cause I was sitting here listening and thinking about like my own sexual journey and so much of it was that compulsory sexuality that we talked about earlier and so much of it wrap was was and still is wrapped up in almost a disconnection from my desires and what I think should be happening or what happens next Mm -hmm. like this script or this conveyor belt of identity Mm -hmm. you know we've talked on the show before about like our personal queer journeys and our sexuality a lot. Um, But, you know, when I was younger, so much of my sexuality was wrapped up in what I thought sexuality was for girlhood, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't even know back then if I knew how to stop, sit and listen to like my personal yearnings or my personal preferences, you know? 
Yeah. Um, and I think one thing I would say, you know, going back to what are the costs of compulsory sexuality for everyone, I think compulsory sexuality makes people violate their own boundaries. Yeah. I think yes. it makes people think, okay, um, if I do this, you know, I, I will be desired. I will be normal. Yep. I will finally be sexy. I will, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, there's issues with consent with the other person too, but it almost makes you, I think compulsory sexuality can make you kind of give up some of your own consent to this idea of what it's supposed to bring you. And of course, you know, the usual caveats, I, sex can be very powerful and healing and wonderful, but it isn't Mm -hmm. always. And the times when it is powerful and healing, it is when it, I think is truly chosen. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's like a great lead into the next question, which is about sort of that idea of sex and sort of sexual liberation and sex as being, the sort of healing or like the thing that, that helps us become more fully who we are. Right. And, um, this was a really transformational part for me in your book, right. Which is that this sort of sexual liberation has just flipped the morality around sex instead of getting rid of the morality. Right. So we went from this idea of not having or talking about sex as being virtuous or being the thing that we Mm -hmm. should be sort of ascribing to or, or striving to be, so this idea that now you should be having the most sex and that sex should be as unvanilla as possible. And if you're not doing that, then you're not liberated, which is like this new sort of ideal that we're working towards. And the problem is we didn't get rid of the hierarchy, right? We, we kept the hierarchy in place. We just like flipped it around. Um, can you talk about why that is harmful? Like what are the implications of that and how does that sort of play out for folks across the spectrum? Yeah, I think for anyone, it just creates a new set of norms. You know, once the norms were, you know, no sex until you're married. And now the norms are, you know, you haven't had a threesome. You're so vanilla. For me personally, (laughs) um, I mean, in my first relationship in my early 20s, he wanted it to be an open relationship. And I just didn't want that. And I just couldn't handle it. But I felt so much shame. I felt, you know, I don't, you know, I'm not down for this. I need to... I need to evolve somehow and become this more, you know, liberated version of myself. That's okay with it because actually I'm just, I'm being so conservative. And if I'm conservative sexually, then that means I'm also politically conservative. And so Mm. I think this crossing of kind of sexual, of conservative sexual politics, the association of conservative sexual politics um, with just being personally conservative sexually Again, I think it makes people violate their own boundaries. It makes people not feel free to do what they want. It makes people feel like they should be doing things that are not right for them um, in pursuit of some political goal. Mm. I, yeah, I really, um, there's just a lot of pressure. And I think pressure is not what sexual liberation is about. Choice is. Mm. But Mm -hmm. when you flip the circle or the hierarchy, you don't have a choice. You just have a new set of things you're supposed to live up to, to be the person you want to be. But Mm. what if we could be that person? What if there were so many roads to be that person, you know? And it was not the only road there was through threesomes that you didn't want to have. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm just sitting here thinking all of the ways that we create weapons against ourselves <laughs> or like new yeah. ways to feel like not enough because it's so yeah. um, 
this is all so relatable and, and I can recognize myself in what you're saying and in your book. We also get hundreds of letters from our listeners all the time. And so many of them are about um, this sense of lacking or non-normalcy. Um, but what you're saying is like, there are so many paths. There are so many routes to yourself. We just only know how to talk about one or the other. Um, like, like we started this conversation with, with that black and white thinking. Yeah, exactly. All right, y'all know that Sam and I record every single episode of Just Break Up virtually. So I literally see this beautiful person on Zoom like multiple times a week. And every time Sam pops up into Zoom, I comment on their outfit. And I swear, like 99% of the time, I'm like, oh my God, that outfit is so cute. Where did you get it? Sam says quince. You too can upgrade your wardrobe with luxury essentials at unbeatable prices. Quince is here to transform the way you shop with a range of high quality items priced within reach. That's right. They have 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters for $50, organic cotton sweaters, washable silk tops, and timeless 14 karat jewelry. And the best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middle person and passes that saving on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. Y'all have heard me talk about my leather bag that I use as both a laptop bag and a diaper bag. And I love it because (laughs) (laughs) honestly, it looks really cute in every single circumstance that I use it. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash just break up for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash just break up to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash just break up. All right, head and heart workers, you know, I'm all about tackling our money shame and becoming fiscally empowered, regardless of how much money we make or how much debt we have. I think it's such a crucial step in our own self-acceptance and empowerment. That's why I love that today's episode is sponsored by Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. With Rocket Money, you can see all of your subscriptions in one place. And if you see something you don't want, you can just cancel it with a tap. You never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled unwanted subscriptions. And listen, we always talk to you about like conflict styles and open and honest communications, but honestly, save your energy and get Rocket Money to cancel those subscriptions for you. (laughs) Stop wasting money. You don't need to practice that. Yeah. We don't need to do head and heart work with like customer service representatives. You know what I mean? Like just like... 
Use the middle person. <laughs> Just get Rocket Money in there to help you do what you need to do. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash justbreakup. That's rocketmoney.com slash justbreakup. Rocketmoney.com slash justbreakup. So another thing that we have um, gratefully borrowed from your book uh, to talk about on our show is the idea of different consenting styles and um, just the different under how you're asking for a different understanding of consent that still obviously respects the importance of it, but also makes space um, like you do in so much of the book and this conversation. Um, making space for the fact that it might look and feel differently for um, different partners, different players, different people um, that some people might have an enthusiastic yes. And other people might have a delayed yes, or, you know, <laughs> need um, a different approach. Can you tell me a little bit about different consenting styles and, and how you came to that? Yeah. I think a lot of the discourse around consent um is primarily for people who are aloe because it is different when you don't experience sexual attraction or experience very little because for a long time the idea was you know an enthusiastic yes is the only is the only yes an enthusiastic yes being like i personally you know very much want to have yes. sex with you for me yep. and i understand where that where that came from and i think it's powerful but if you're an ace person i know many ace people who just probably would never have an enthusiastic yes. They are fine yeah. being celibate, but they still can have and enjoy um, sex and consent to sex. And the idea that you can't consent unless it's enthusiastic, I think it's both a little bit patronizing um, mm. about our abilities to consent. And I think it, again, puts this yes-no binary. But in fact, there's just such a whole range of different types of consent. You can mm. say enthusiastic yes, you can say the no that is screaming and, you know, shouting. And then there's, you know, in the middle, maybe you say yes, but you don't actually want to. Like, is that, how where does that fit in the binary? We need to be mm. able to talk mm. about that as mm -hmm. well. Um, and also, you know, kind of the flip side of this is that I think among many relationships, this is not just an ace thing. People sometimes have sex with their partners because their partners want to, and they meaning, they meaningfully consent and they don't feel coerced. You know, I, I've, I know enough folks to know this is very common. And <laughs> yes. when you have the yes or no binary, it just, it makes that seem like it was coerced when it's not. So we need to talk about all the kind of, you know, places in the middle, the places where negotiation is part of it, but also you can feel meaningfully able to make a decision. Whereas sometimes right. the action looks the same, but you are operating from a place of fear or a place of feeling pressured. And that is actually very different. It's all very subtle. So when we talk sure. about consent, we need to dig in. We need to not do this yes or no. There's like everything, almost everything happens in between. Reading about that was liberating for me as a person who's in a sexual relationship um, because often the type of sex that we would be having is that like, you know, as somebody who's not a super sexual person would be like, well, I don't sure. want to, <laughs> but I'll, I'll do it. Right. I know that once we're doing it, I'm going to like it and it's going to be good. And I want to be in relationship with you. And I, and I want to like be close and intimate with you. Exactly. And I put a lot of pressure on myself to say like, Ooh, I'm doing this wrong. I should be wanting to have sex all the time. Mm -hmm. I should be wanting to have enthusiastic sex with this person. 
And reading through this book in lots of different places, but also particularly in that section around consent, I was like, oh, I feel really seen. Like this is a this is a good and healthy and okay way to be engaging in sex with with my partner is to to not necessarily be like, yeah, I'm gonna initiate every time when we're gonna be gung-ho all the time, but instead being like, I'm making an active choice to say yes to this thing, knowing that it's gonna be good for me and for my partner. And that's an okay way to approach sex and relationships, which didn't feel available to me until I read through that, that section of the book. Yeah. And when you hear people talk about, you know, long-term relationships or marriage, you know, people always say it is the choice, you know, when you've been married 20 years, it's not like you wake up in the morning as excited as the first day, but (laughs) you make the choice to be with them and it's lovely and you build something together. And I do wonder why we can't apply some more of that thinking to sex, you know, Mm. because we can say it's a choice and it's actually romantic that it's a choice. That's loyalty. That's, you know, something to cherish. But with sex, it's like, if I'm not jumping you the minute you walk in, if we're not doing it, on the floor. Is that sad? Is that, you know, is that something to mourn? So I also think, you know, it's not just thinking about other ways toward liberation, but just thinking about sex differently and what types of sex do we value and what is worth valuing and what do we mourn and why do we mourn that? So there's so much more to dig into. Yes. Mm. Just echoing Sam's sentiment. That was the first part Um, that was the first piece of goodness that he brought, um, to me and to our show from your book that we, that just sort of obviously, um, resonated with Sam and I both personally, and, um, just wanted to like echo my thanks for that because, you know, in addition to like a longstanding relationship in which you are navigating a different type of sex, right? That mm. um, other that you know, not the fucking on the floor sex, <laughs> um, but you know, the choosing, the the saying like yes, um, sex. Um, it it helped me unpack, you know, for a lot of people with maybe um, uh, sexual assault in their history mm-hmm. or. Um, like I said, I shared earlier, like maybe a sexual history that doesn't feel totally authentic or connected Mm -hmm. to the self, Mm -hmm. you know, sex, sex is so complicated hormonally, physically, you know, your body like carries all these really intersecting, intersecting and tangled, um, threads of identity, experience, trauma, expectations, you know, cultural conditioning. And so just this perspective on consent, this explanation of it allowed just a little of that tangled, not to feel less tangled and feel more (laughs) normal. Um, So thank you for that. Yeah. I'm so glad. I really just think that for people who do have sex and want it, people want different things. You know, people, there's Mm -hmm. so many, you know, postpartum, you know, people feel different. Women feel different about their bodies and they might want a different sex when you're old, when you're older, if you have, like you said, that history of um, sexual assault or trauma, then there's people want and need so many different things. But again, the kind of on the floor, on the couch um, type of sex is the one that is held up as the one that you should Mm -hmm. aspire to instead Mm -hmm. of what actually might feel safe and exciting for you. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that actually leads into the next question, which is really about, you know, one of the, one of the things that we hear a lot from our listeners, um, is this question around like sort of disparate 
sexual desires, right? So my partner thinks we should be having more sex or that our sex should look a particular way, or I like having sex with my partner, but I don't like to initiate. And they're telling me I need to initiate more. And I'm, I'm curious if you have any recommendations, any advice for folks to talk about disparate sort of sexual desires with their partners in a way that affirms that there's not one right or best way to be having sex. Yeah. You know, I think, um, desire discrepancies are really, really common. I don't think it's an ACE thing, you know, as I think your (laughs) listeners show, this is, this is a very common thing. So I think the first step to start with is we should not expect that, you know, going to any relationship that we would have the same libido forever. I don't think that probably has never happened, uh, according <laughs> to what I, what I know. Um, and I've heard. So the first thing is it is totally normal to be having this conversation. And I think so much of it is about really deconstructing, you know, why do we, do you want to have more sex? What are you getting out of it? Um, what do you, what do you feel like you're not getting? What do you miss when you're, um, when we're not having, we're not having sex? How much of it is this vague feeling that we should be versus you actually, mm. you know, not feeling close mm-hmm. to me? Um, mm. Because at the end of the day, I think, you know, if it's just about orgasms, you know, vibrators exist, hands exist, um, <laughs> right. you know, like on the very specific, just kind of bodily, um, you know, level, like people can get off by themselves. Yes. So I often think so much of it is about what is, it's about the ego. It is about feeling connected. And if I think if you can try to get the conversation there and it's, it's harder, I think, to talk about those things than it is to say, well, I just need more sex because that's mm. normal because that's what people in relationships do. But I think if mm-hmm. you can, you know, acknowledge the maybe physical needs, but also talk about the emotional stuff and, you know, are you, have you been feeling like you're not close to your partner recently and, or, you know, why are you afraid to initiate? Are you uncomfortable with expressing desire? I think so much of it is, is emotional. Um, I think it is easy for us to say this is just a inevitable physical need um, with an inevitable physical solution, but there's so much background and culture and all of that that goes into the conversation. But really, I think it starts with this is a normal conversation to have. This mm-hmm. is a necessary sure. conversation to have. Everyone will either have this conversation or the relationship will have more tension, you know? So it's great that we're talking about this and learning to talk about this, even if it's uncomfortable, is actually strengthening us. This is not a problem. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it It makes me think that so often our, our conversations or our conflict around sex is sort of material. Like we think that it's really material. Like mm-hmm. we need to, we just need to be having more sex or we need to be having sex in a particular way. But often it's so much more, symbolic or relational, right? Like what is the sex saying about Mm -hmm. our broader Mm -hmm. worldviews or our understandings of ourselves, or what is the sex that we're having saying about the relationship that we have with each Mm. other? And, and I don't think that many of us are very well practiced in getting beyond the material and going into that symbolic and relational about what is the sex actually saying to us and, and how are we going to deal with the fact that what that sex is saying is probably going to be different because we're two different people in different bodies with different sexual desires, histories, identities, and, and understandings 
of what sex is and what sex means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when you put it that way, I mean, of course that's so complicated. No one wants to deal yeah. with that. We should all, you know, like even just listening to you, I want to run back to my binaries and easy rules because I feel tired kind of yeah. listening to it's you. Real. But then, you know, that's, that's the trade-off, right? Like yes. I do kind of, oh yeah. I was like, you're right. We're, we all have different bodies and sexualities and how do people ever get together? Yes. But that is you know, once you're able to talk about that, I think that's just one part. That's like a really deep part of true intimacy. For sure. Absolutely. And intimacy is terrifying at times. Yeah. It's really scary. <laughs> the expanse of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, so we ask all of our wonderful guests, the final three questions. Um, so first, what is a piece of relationship advice that you used to believe that you no longer subscribe to? One thing I've been thinking about is that I used to get a lot you know, kind of typical piece of advice is that if you're dating, it's good to casually date a few different people because then you don't fix it on one person. Right. Mm. And I used to really believe in that until I realized that I honestly don't have time in my schedule to do that. (laughs) And I also don't want to cognitively do that. But I think the the bigger piece of that is that I think it's true. Like it is just more likely for you to fix it on someone. If you're only seeing one person and you don't Mm -hmm. know if they're seeing other people. But for me, it's actually been really helpful to say, I choose to accept this risk. You know, Mm. I'm a pretty security oriented person. It's important for me to feel safe, but I don't want to feel safe at the expense of just going on random dates Mm -hmm. to, to, you know, disperse the risk. So thinking about risk as something I actively choose um, Mm. and saying that I get to decide what level of risk I have in relationships um, Mm. has been helpful to me. Fascinating. I love that. I haven't thought about it in that way. Um, So really appreciate you naming that. So the next question we ask everyone, um, every episode, we have a blind date, which is a recommendation to our listeners, something that we're trying to set them up with. So it can be a book, a podcast, a TV show, an album, a song, anything that you really love right now or that you have loved before. So we're going to ask you to do our blind date for this week. Yeah. So is it okay if it's not a new book or album or anything like that? Yes, oh, absolutely. absolutely. Okay. Really great. Um, yeah. So the one album I've been obsessed with actually came out 20 years ago. It's Vespertine <laughs> by Bjork. Um, yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love Bjork when I was younger and then her new album came out. So of course I'm listening through her discography again. And that album is just so cohesive and it's mm. so romantic. And I mean, now she's no longer with that person. So it's a little bittersweet, but I just mm. love the Vespertine album. Possibly my favorite album by her. Awesome. I love it. Okay. And where can people find you and how can they support you? Um, they can find me on my website, AngelaChen.org, um, because AngelaChen.com is too expensive. And then on... <laughs> org sounds fancier, to be honest. It does. It really I think does. so too, right? It's like I'm, I'm an LLC or something. Yes. And then yeah. um, on Twitter, and then my handle is at Chendula. Awesome. And of course, um, if you haven't gotten it already, make sure to pick up a copy of ACE, What Asexuality Reveals About Desire Society and the Meaning of Sex. We kind of have a running joke at Just Break Up because Sam gets really into (laughs) book recommendations. And so like before ACE, he was really recommending um, adult children of emotionally immature parents for like two years. And so (laughs) and now it's ACE, like every other episode, he'll bring your book up. So congratulations. You're in the rotation. Amazing. 
<laughs> you've surplanted the other book and you've become yeah. my number one recommendation. A so. triumph. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Um, Angela, thank you so much for being here, for having such a wonderful, nuanced and vulnerable conversation. And thank you so much for writing this book. It obviously had a great impact on both of us and we know our listeners are going to love it. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here and for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. Good. I'm so glad. All right, y'all, if you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to stay tuned for more Head and Heart Work conversations on our primary feed every other Thursday. And if all else fails, just break up.